Good morning. My name is Derek, one of the other pastors here. And uh, grab your Bible, please. Turn to Ephesians. That's where we're going to be. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you or under you, and it is uh, page number 1080. 1080 is where we're going to be. If I was going to ask you, what is the one thing apart from a relationship with Jesus that has the most uh, possibility of bringing joy, uh, contentment in life, but also has the possibility of bringing the most pain in life, what would that be? The family, the family right. Yeah, I mean, we just saw the video, so yeah, it gives it away. But the family, absolutely. Relationships. Relationships really do have the, the ability to to make us depressed and anxious and, and just bleh about life or the ability to really fill us with joy. And so we are going to be talking about the family for the next four weeks. You know, as I was preparing, um, I, I read some studies that I wasn't crazy about, but, but we all know this stuff is true, that the family is in really greater decline now than, than ever before. You know, d- divorce has always been an issue, really, um, for 50 years or so in the church. But now it's even more people just not getting married at all. And so there's more and more kids growing up without both parents in the home, you know, single parent or split and all those things. And the studies are very clear that one of the best things we can do for kids is have both biological parents in the home. Uh, Statistics are really clear that they have a greater chance of financial success, academic success, social success, and I would say spiritual success also. And, And for some of us, it's like, oh, that ship has sailed, right? Our kids are not in that situation. That's why I think this is great. God is also a God of redemption, and God can can bring healing where there's already some brokenness, and this is where we need that healing, family. When we started Common Ground years ago, this was truly one of my greatest dreams, to help families be what God wanted them to be, because it is so central to life and society. Again, we look at the culture, and oh, look at where it's all going. What's the answer? Well, the government's not going to fix it. The answer is, is the family. It all starts in the family. Why are kids growing up all you know, messed up and confused sexually and all this stuff, if they have a healthy family, that's what's going to fix that more than anything else. It's not 100%, absolutely. But we want to focus on the family. I mean, and I'm not talking focus on the family, James Dobson, but, but we want to look at the family and how we can do this well. So this is going to be a little different. Maybe you've heard us preach on family before because we do it almost every year because it's that important. And a lot of times we go through the roles, right? What's the wife's role? What's the husband's role? What's the kid's role? Obey. Um, That's just it. Just do what you're told. Um, This isn't going to be like that. That can be very helpful. This is going to be a little different. We're going to be in Ephesians, and we're going to be going a little bit deeper to what's the root of our relationship issues, right? Why are you arguing all the time. You know, what, what is happening? Why are kids at odds with parents? What's the root of this? So this will be more like a, like a therapy session. So, you know, you can grab your, your pillow and lay down and, and uh, I'm going to ask you to open up your feelings a little bit and be honest as we go through with, with your own heart and what God might want to do in you to heal families or to even just bring greater success to families. So Ephesians chapter 4 now, the book of Ephesians is, is pretty amazing. We've taught through it before. The first three chapters are a lot of truth, a lot of doctrine. We learn in those first three chapters that we are adopted, right, by God, that we are chosen. We learn that we are saved by faith alone, by God's grace. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, probably some of the most famous pass- or scriptures in, in all the Bible. But we're saved by faith, not by works. 
But once we're saved, we're then saved to do good works that God prepared for us. All this is in the first half of Ephesians. And then the second half of Ephesians really is kind of the so what to the first three chapters. So what? So, so there is one God revealed in Jesus. He died on the cross to save us. We can't do anything. To, so what? So what? Look at chapter four, starting in verse one. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the topic he's starting in there? All this truth, and then he goes to this application, he starts that. What's the topic? It's unity among believers. It's unity within the church, but then also, obviously, that's going to apply to our families. Unity. And what does he say in, uh, in verse 5? No, that's not it. Verse 2, right? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Why does he say that? Why do we have to bear with one another? Because y'all are difficult. <laughs> right? I mean, why? There's, there's a piece of, if you're like me, there's a piece of us that goes, but if we know Jesus, we know he died for us, rose from the dead, we're united to him, we're given the Holy Spirit, everything should just be perfect, right? Like, why are we having these issues? Well, you're the problem. I'm the problem because we're not fully there yet, right? We're saved, but we're still in these bodies where sin still dwells, and so we struggle. So the truth is, we can be difficult, right? Look at the person next to you and say, you can be difficult. Don't actually do that. My goodness. <laughs> But, but here's, here's, here's the point. This is our first point. This is on your notes. We're back to taking notes, and it's written in there, and that's cool. Our goal is healthy and thriving relationships with imperfect people. This is helpful to set our perspective. If we expect the other people to be perfect, to fit our box, we're going to be disappointed. We're going to fail. We're going to be frustrated. We're going to be angry. If we recognize they're imperfect, and if we look in the mirror and realize I'm imperfect too, that's going to change how we view our family. There's going to be more grace, right? If I expect my kids to fail, then I'm not surprised when they do, right? If I expect to, to fall short at times, then I'm not surprised when I do, and, and this isn't an excuse, right? So when we recognize this, now we can, by grace with one another, we can then pursue God humbly. Again, it's not an excuse to live in sin, but it's just a fact that we're not there yet, and we're all in process, so, do you feel stuck in your marriage? Have you been fighting for a while? Is, is fighting kind of a normal thing? It, it shouldn't be. It, it's not, right? Are you at odds with your kids? That's not normal. It, it's normal to go through periods, absolutely, especially when they're teenagers and they're trying to push you away and, you know, whatever. Um, but how are things? Is there something going on right now that you're like, oh, I, I need the answer to this. I would love for this to be fixed. Well, turn toward forward to verse 17. Now, we looked at the first six verses, which really sets the context going forward that we're looking at unity among believers. We're looking at unity really among the family. And starting in verse 17, it says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. 
Now compare 17 to, to 4.1. What do we see in both of those? The word walk. Walk. Go this way. What does that mean? How do we order our lives? Right? How are we thinking? How are we behaving? We're moving. Our life is, is a process, right? It's a journey. We're traveling. So how are you walking? And what does he say here? Don't walk as the Gentiles. What is a Gentile? Well, in the, in the Old Testament sense, anybody not a Jew is a Gentile. In the New Testament sense, Paul often refers to non-believers as Gentiles. So a Gentile is just simply here, somebody who does not believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the, the dead, and has surrendered to him as Lord. That is a Gentile, an unbeliever. So what he's saying is, stop living like an unbeliever. That's interesting. I find that interesting. We can be saved, but still live as if we're not. Even though we're given the Holy Spirit, we're given everything, we can live as if we're not. And he's saying, he say, no longer. He's saying, stop doing this. They're doing something. Stop doing it. Why do we have relationship issues? We have relationship issues when we live as if God does not exist. Right? Think about that. When we live as if God does not exist. And if you're anything like me, you probably have times like this where you're going through a day um, and, and your brain is going places it shouldn't, or you find yourself just irritable and, and angry or stressed over money or whatever it is, and then you realize, what am I doing? I, I, I belong to God. What, why is my brain thinking this way? If God doesn't exist, I should stress over all these things. But God does exist. He loves me. He chose me. I'm part of his family. So why am I thinking this way? Again, we have these issues when we live as if God does not exist. Uh, back in the day, you would hear a phrase, I don't hear it so much anymore, oh, that person is a God-fearer, right? And from Proverbs, right? Uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Do we fear God? When we, when we fear God, and that's a reverence, that's not I'm scared to be smote by him, uh, but it's a, it's a reverence for who he is, and we live with that at all times. When we don't, we live like we used to, we live like the unbeliever. And so how does a non-believer walk? What is the natural way of living if you don't believe God exists? Look at verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now, it looks like he's bashing the non-believer, but he's really, he's just stating a fact. And his point here is for the believer. Stop living as if God does not exist, because when you do, this is what happens in your life. And you wonder why you don't have unity among the church. You wonder why family has relationship issues, because you're living like this. And what does he say? He uses the word ignorant in there, right? The person who remains ignorant, arrogant, hard-hearted is always going to struggle with relationships. So what is ignorant? A lot of times we think that word means stupid, but that's not what that word means. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid. It means unwilling to learn, unwilling to know. It's something that you don't know, right? They're ignorant of it, right? Uh, uh, sound issues over there, and you ask me to help. I'm ignorant. I can't help you. Um, again, not stupid, just you don't know. So the, the ignorant person is unwilling to learn and invest in learning. Again, this is not how the believer is. This is the unbeliever not willing to learn. So do you have relationship issues? Learn. Parents, when's the last time you read a parenting book? Right? Marriages. Are you struggling? Do a Bible study together. Oh, I hear this all the time. You know, couples struggling. It says, okay, 
do some counseling, and often one wants to, the other doesn't, but they want to fix it, but they're unwilling to take that step, right, to learn. That's ignorant. Arrogant, right? Arrogant and hard-hearted. Is everybody else the problem? Right? Do you have relationship issues and it's their fault all the time? That's arrogance. Or, or this hard-hearted is, is the unteachable, right? When someone comes against you, do you lash back, right? You, you have to defend yourself. Again, arrogant. They're the problem, not me. That's why we began with this idea, you're not perfect. And the problem, if we realize most of it starts within ourselves, that we are the issue. So this arrogant person, hard-hearted, unwilling to learn, that's how the non-believer lives. You know, when I do counseling, I always give homework. Whether it's premarital counseling, whatever, I always give homework. And the test is if they do the work or not. Uh, I, I talked to a couple recently who, who went to a, a counselor, and the counselor gave them homework, and they did it twice because it was so good. They were learning, and they went back, and he said, you actually did the homework. They said, well, yeah, we're paying to meet with you, and we want to get better. He said, most people don't even do the homework. That's interesting to me, that we want to get better, but we're unwilling to do the things to learn what it is, how we can get better. Again, arrogant, hard-hearted. Why is it? Uh, maybe in a relationship issue or, or somebody criticizes us, why do we lash out? Why, why do we put up these walls? This morning as I was going through my notes, I always do it Sunday morning and kind of praying through this. Uh, I felt like God, the Holy Spirit, kind of showed me something here. A lot of times we react in fear, don't we? The reason we react this way is fear. Fear of being exposed is not as spiritual as we think we are. Um, fear that the other person is going to reject us, so maybe we put up a wall. Fear. The non-believer lives by, by fear. The believer would rather live by faith, right? There's a big difference. Are we operating by fear? Are we living like a non-believer? Now look at verse 20. I love Paul. Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul says, this is how the non-believer lives. You've been living this way. Stop it. That's not who you are. That's not who you are anymore. If you are truly saved, he, 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 that if is in there, right? If you have learned about God, if you have surrendered to Jesus as Lord, what are you doing? That's not how you learned Christ. That's not the way you should be living. Healthy, thriving relationships begin when we live in line with our new identity in Christ. All right, so here's our therapy session. You're laying on the couch. We're, we're going to dig a little, we're going to poke. It comes down to identity. If you walk away with anything else today, how can I have a healthier family? How can I have healthier relationships? It begins with your identity. How you view yourself. Do you view yourself accurately or inaccurately? And how are you living according to your identity? Because Paul is saying here, your identity is in Christ. So live like it. You've been given everything you need in him. Live like it. Stop living as if your identity is apart from Christ. And we see that in our actions, right? How we act reveals where we see our identity as being. You know, our society is, is all about identity right now. If that's for me, take a message. I'm busy. Um, right? We're all about identity. You can find your identity in, in whatever it is. Do you remember being in high school? I've shared this story before. There was a, a kid that... Each year of, of the high school, he came back different. The first year, I think he was a gangster. The next year, I think he was a cowboy. Um, the next year, he was a skater. You know, like, who am I? 
Who am I going to be viewed as? And you probably remember that. And those of you in high school, you know, like, what am I going to be? Am I going to be the Christian kid? Am I going to be the jock kid? Right? And then we parents, we don't really grow out of that, do we? Are we adults? We still struggle with identity. How are we viewed? How are people going to view me? How do I view myself? What is my identity? And if our identity is in anything other than Christ, we're going to have relationship issues. Again, we're talking about family here. But if you look at this, again, how we identify ourselves will impact how we relate to everybody else. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, You see it in the movies or you've been there, whatever. And it always starts with, my name is so-and-so and I'm an alcoholic. I've always struggled with that. Because if you're in Christ, you're not identified with your addiction or your sin. And I've heard of these people that they've been clean for 30 years, but they still say, I am an alcoholic. No, you're in Christ. Maybe you have some temptations in your struggle, but we don't identify with our sin. We identify with being in Christ. And so what is our identity? This is where we start. Recognize our identity. Uh, These verses are going to appear on screen, so you don't have to turn there. But Ephesians 2.13 before in the same book, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You may feel like a guilty sinner mess, but God has brought you near. This is important. You may feel like God is distant, but if you have accepted him, as he is not. He is close and he, is, he has brought you near. Colossians 1, 21 and 22. It says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, that is God, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God. You are reconciled. Do you realize that? I mean, just think about that for a second. I was separated from God because of my sin. Jesus died on the cross. When I accept that, that's what he's talking about here, in his body of flesh, in his death, We can be made right with God, reconciled, meaning there is no break in our relationship with God. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that when you sin, he separates from you? When you stumble, he's like, ah, not mine, right? No, we are reconciled no matter what because of what he has done. And so that he can present you holy and blameless. In the end, when Jesus returns and when we are presented before God, I mean, this is a picture of, of kind of Jesus presenting us before the Father. Look, look what I have. Look what I got. You know, and, and picture you, right, holy and blameless. Now we look in the mirror and we're like, I, I'm not holy and blameless. I know my dirt. I know my sin. But God looks at us and he sees Jesus. That's what Jesus did on the cross. That God can look at us and see Jesus who did live perfectly, holy and blameless, and now has given that, that white sheet of cleanliness over us, and that's what God sees. So do you realize that? God views you as holy and blameless. That changes it. When we live in guilt and shame, we distance from people. We distance from the church, right? We distance from God. God says, no, you don't live in shame anymore. You are holy and blameless because I said so. That's who you are. And Ephesians 1.5, in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You are loved, adopted, chosen, and cherished by God. This is huge, right? We can have debates over Calvinism, Arminianism, and and is God in control, or do we have free, whatever. Here's a fact that the Bible teaches. God chose you. God looked at you, knew your mess. He knows your heart. He knows your brain, and he goes, I want you. I choose you. 
I adopt you into my family. I give you my name. That gives me chills. That should give you chills too because you know you. <laughs> and God looked at you and said, I want you. Wow. That should change the way we view ourselves. God wants us. God loves us. And we are in him. Listen to this. This is in your notes. Our perceived identity is where we find meaning and purpose. This is big. Our perceived identity is where we find meaning and purpose. Is your identity in physical fitness, right? You want to be viewed as, as healthy or strong or whatever it is. Is your identity in work? You want to be seen as successful. Uh, is your identity in your family? You need your kids to look good. What is your identity? Again, if our perceived identity is where we find meaning and purpose, how does this impact our relationships? A lot of times it's going to be about me rather than about the person I'm relating to. Parents, do you find your identity in your kids? If you want to know what I'm talking about, go to any Little League game and watch the parents. Parents living vicariously through their kids, right? Or the parent whose kid has to be in, in music and the sports, all these things. They need their kid to succeed, not for the kid, but for them. They need to be seen a certain way. Is that you? What do you do when your five-year-old in the grocery store throws a fit? You need to, shh, 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 no, 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 people are looking at me. Or, go for it, <laughs> you look silly, right? And you will get the looks. People are going to come by the aisle and go, <laughs> and you're standing there just watching the kid flop around, <laughs> right? That's a test a little bit about our, our identity. And I'm not saying you should let him flop. Maybe you should. It depends on the kid, right? Maybe you should drag him out and stick him in the car. I, I don't know. But how do you, where is your identity? How do you respond in those situations? There's a, a book that we've been reading. We have it out here available, Parenting, uh, by Paul David Tripp. And, and he says this in the book, which really stuck out to me. Could it be that the focus on physical, social, and educational accomplishments has kept you from focusing on their hearts? Speaking of your kids. How many kids are so busy because mom and dad need them to be that they don't get to focus on the heart? Meaning they're so busy, they're not coming to church on Sundays very often because they're so busy in life. Oh, my goodness. Th this is one of those places where hearts are built, even in kids, whether it's in here or in the back. I mean, what we're doing back there with kids is so important. We're wanting to dig into their hearts. Or times in, in your family life, do you have time to just sit and talk about what's happening, right? For them to share what's, what's going on and you not just try and fix them, so you, but listening, right? Callie's way better at this than me. Right? When I hear issues, I'm like, I'm going to fix it. The teacher did what? Who did what? Like, I'm going to go fix it. No, you just sit there. They just want to be heard and listened to, right? Do we have time for those things with our kids to focus on their hearts? Um, you ever look at Facebook or, or whatever social media and you see the, the pictures family post? They're always those, the perfect pictures, right? They choose the best one. And I remember years ago, and I didn't get permission from this, but, so I hope it's okay, Callie. But I remember Callie looking at some, some posts, and it was a time when I think our kids were bickering and there was some strife, and, and she's seeing these pictures of other families. She's like, they're so happy. Like, they, they just went on this vacation, and it looks like they didn't fight at all. They all love each other. It's like, those are doctored photos, <laughs> right? Like, they have struggles too, and so I thought I would put up one of our family photos, which is one of my favorites. <laughs> Can we be okay with family being real a little bit, R right? So, so this is a little old, but we've got our youngest, Elise, just being silly, 
Oh, a picture? <laughs> right? And then we have Kayla being sweet, you know, smiling for the camera. And then Brendan, our oldest, doing what all of us always want to do to Lydia. <laughs> right? Because Lydia was probably doing something. And he's like, I, it's just, I love this picture because it's, it's real, right? And, and, and it's, it's fun too. But are we okay with our family being real? Or do we need to put on a, a picture for others to see? When we do that, right, when we're faking it all, we don't get to work on the real things. Listen, the church is the family. We, I mean, we as the church are the family. We can put that off. Eh? <laughs> Thanks. Um, if we're going to get better, we need to be honest. That's why groups for us are such a, a priority that we can get in groups and then hopefully share what's happening in life and be there for each other, not fake, not pretend like we got in. Because guess what? We know you haven't arrived. You know I haven't arrived. And we can do this together. Again, the dream, oh, I have this dream of, these, of our kids growing up and being sent into the world just as, as warriors for God's kingdom because they were raised by parents who love them and parents who were real, not pretending to be perfect. All right, so let's get even more practical. So we see this, I, okay, it's our identity. What is our identity? We could live as the unbeliever. We're supposed to live as a believer. So now let's look at some specific instructions Paul gives us in verse 22. It says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. I love this picture and how Paul makes this practical. He's saying, listen, you're new in Christ. He loves you. That's your identity. You can live like the old person. So it's true. You'll, maybe you'll find self times in life where you're like, am I even a believer? Oh, right? You're struggling because you see the things in your life. Well, he's saying you can live like the unbeliever, but you're not supposed to. That's not who you are. So do something. Put off that old person. This takes some intentionality right? Put off the person that you used to be. When you see yourself starting to respond, say in your marriage, she says that or, or, or he does that and, and you, your knee jerk is defensive or lash back or whatever it is, it's kind of a timeout. Wait a minute. That's me without God. With God, right? My identity is in him and so I'm okay maybe being wounded or taking it and you adjust and you will respond differently when we recognize our, our relationship with God really is where we get our primary identity. Somebody's texting me. Oh, okay, sounds good. Was that one of you? Silence your phones. Come on now. <laughs> this is in your notes. When our old self rears its head, recognize it, and admit that it's not who you are. Can I tell you, this has been something actually useful in my life, whether it's a temptation or a response to just time out real quick. That's not who I am. That's not who I am. That's not how God views me. That's, I'm not an angry person, right? I'm not identified with my sin. That's not who I am. So I've done this illustration before, and I think it's just a good picture, right? Our old self, right? This is us, a little dirty, maybe. Maybe you have one of these jackets that your wife borrowed to paint. And, um, but this, this, right, this is who I used to be, right? Dirty, messed up. I got baggage. I got stains. And I can choose still as a believer to live like this. 
And I got to tell you, this is one of the most frustrating things as a pastor with a dream to see people growing, to see them wearing their old self, just this is who I am, right? And that's not what God wants. And so intentionally, I mean, this is something we're told to do, not just sit back and let God, but we take off the old self intentionally take it off. And this isn't a one-time thing. This is an everyday thing. We take off the old self and then we put on the new self. Okay, this is who I am now. So when somebody wounds me, I take a minute, right? Okay, this is who I am now. How would I respond in Christ? Because it's who I am. I belong to Jesus. How would he have me respond in this moment? I mean, this sounds super spiritual, doesn't it? And it is. <laughs> it's not that easy. It takes an abiding relationship. I love that song we were singing, Teach Me to Abide. As we abide in Jesus and we, clink, we have this jacket on more and more often. But when we are in the process, and guess what? We're all still in process. None of us have arrived yet. We're going to be going through our day, right? We're going to get up, maybe even have a nice little devotional. And then life happens and we look down we're like, oh my goodness, I'm wearing this jacket again. What, what, how am I responding this way? What, why am I acting this way again? Oh, I got to take it off, right? This is very intentional, and this is an ongoing thing that we take off our old self, and we put on, and I could just do this for the next hour so that you'll remember, <laughs> but, that, but that's the picture. Take off that old self. It's not who you are, and put on the new self, but it's too hot in here to wear a jacket. Who you are in Christ is secure because of what Jesus did on the cross. Absolutely. Your salvation is secure. You've been chosen. You are loved. That's who you are. Living according to it takes some effort. It does. It takes some abiding in Jesus, putting on who you're supposed to be. Intentionally, this is in your notes, intentionally put on your new self and act in line with who you are in Christ. This, this means we spend time in worship. We spend time in prayer and God's word. We spend time in confession. We spend time in repentance. That, that's what this is, is repenting. When we see our old self, again, rearing its ugly head, we repent of that. That's not who I am. And turn around, right? And maybe, parents, we can say this with our kids. Is that who you are, right? You're living this way, or I've heard this about what you're doing there. Is that who you are? Or are you in Christ? Live according to who God has made you to be. Then, when we do, we can do the hard work of relationships because y'all are difficult. Maybe that's how we should have titled this message, y'all are difficult. But we're still people. We can be very difficult. And so when we're walking in Christ, we're, we're abiding, we put on the new self, then we can do the hard work. It doesn't make relationships easier. Maybe it does. But relationships are still work. Right? Parenting is hard. Parenting is very hard. You know, we, we just hired a family pastor, Ben. Hopefully you've met him. If not, come to the kids thing after. You'll get to meet him. Because we think the family is very, 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 very important. And we want to do better serving parents. We want to do better serving kids. But parents, you are the front line for your kids. You are their primary disciplers. And parenting takes hard work. Making decisions, social media, smartphones, all these things. It takes work, and we're going to have a, a, a get-together for two weeks at the end of this family series for parents for us to get to and, and talk and think, how do we think through these difficult things with our kids? Should I homeschool my kids? Should I put them in public school? Should I put them in private school? Right? That, I mean, there's these decisions we have to make, and a lot of it comes down to discernment of what's best for our kid and how do we do what's best, and each kid could be different. 
Even your own kids could be different, and you might need to react to them differently, and they'll say, that's not fair, and you're like, that's right, it's not fair, because you're different. And so parents, for us, when we are wearing our new self, we can live differently with our kids. Again, our identity isn't in them. And so we're not torn up, right? When when they make a mistake, I mean, it's going to hurt us because we love them. We want what's best. But we're not wounded ourselves. So we're going to zip through the next few verses of kind of application, what it looks like, again, when you're putting on your new self, when you're living, abiding in Christ, what happens? Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. So there's the first. We're going to be honest. Ooh, we're going to be honest. We're going to share when somebody hurts us, right? Using statements like, when you did this, I felt this. Not acute, but, but I'm going to be honest. I feel this, right? With your kids, you be honest. You do the hard work. Again, we're, we're not faking it. We're not putting on a show. Be honest. Be angry. Verse 26, and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger. Here's another test uh, of which jacket you're wearing. When you're angry, right, you feel, it's an emotion. A lot of times you can't control it. And it riles up, oh, you're angry, time out. Why am I angry? Is it for a good reason? Most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, it's probably selfish. Sometimes, absolutely. It, it, but take a minute. Is there something about me, I'm angry right now, why? Is it because I'm finding my identity in something other than Christ? Again, we don't have to surrender to our anger. 28 or 27, uh, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Listen to that, our tongues and our family, right? What we say, you, once it's out there, maybe you've done, you, oh, you, tra- you can't pull it back, right? The words that come out of our mouths, and if we are abiding, we have our new self on, they're gonna be different. No corrupting talk. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Listen, all this is possible when we find our identity in, in Christ, right? I know how he views me, and I'm good, so I don't need this from, from anybody else. And then I'm free. Uh, really, it, I'm then free to not be angry, to not be bitter, to not lash out. I'm free to love, verse, or chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. We are free to love. I love that. We are free to love. When it's not about me, I find everything I need in Christ, that I'm just free to love and do what's best. And it's still going to be hard work, but I'm free to love. Has the Holy Spirit poked you at all? Where do you find your identity? Again, because how we view ourselves, our perceived identity, will determine the way we behave, the way we act. Where is your identity? Are you secure in who you are in Christ? You know, we're going to move to worship. And if you're here and your identity is not in Christ, 
This is the time to come see me. I'm going to be in the back. Come talk to me. I don't know if I'm saved, or maybe you know you're not, but you want to be. You want to, to confess your faith that Jesus died on the cross for you, and you can be this person. You can be viewed by God as holy and blameless, chosen, adopted. If you want that, come talk to me. For the rest of us, let's, let's take a minute as we move to worship and let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Do we have relational strife? And instead of going, it's their problem, it, it's my issue. What do I need to work on? How do I need to adjust my thinking? And even how do I need to view myself differently? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, uh, thank you for the honesty. I, I feel like I thank you all the time for this as we go into your word. But thank you that you're honest with us, that you're not doing the, the uber-religious thing of, oh, just you all should be perfect now. But, but your word is clear. We're all on the grow. Um, God, we're saved by faith alone because of what you did alone. But then there's this process the Bible calls sanctification where we become more like you. We become better imitators of you. And in that process, it's a journey and it's messy and we're all in process. None of us have arrived. Um, so God, I... I guess my request right now for families, for marriage, for couples, I mean, a family is, is anything, really. Um, but for families is, is grace. God, I pray that husbands would have grace for their wives, that wives would have grace for their husbands, grace for their kids, and kids would have grace for their parents. Um, I, I know sometimes kids think their parents are perfect, and then their eyes are, are open one day. My parents haven't arrived yet either. Um, so God, I ask for grace and that you would fill us with love for one another and that we would act like you believe. We wouldn't live as if you don't exist. And if we do have issues, we would be teachable. We would grab a book, a parenting book. We would grab a book, a marriage book. We would go to counseling, whatever it is. We would take those steps to humbly put ourselves before you and let you work on us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.